Welcome back to the program. One of the dangers of our celebrity culture today is that we tend to look at those who've attained that status, regardless of their field of endeavor, as fully formed human beings whose life began and ended with the achievements that catapulted them into iconic status. Nothing can be further from the truth. In looking at the stories or biographies of those celebrities, on the one hand, we have case studies that zero in on a particular moment in time or hagiographies that only heighten misperception. This has tended to be the case with Steve Jobs. He wasn't born as the iconic founder and savior of Apple. He evolved over time and his skills, talents, and personalities either acted as receptors or antagonists to the moments, to the people, and to the issues at hand. In looking at his story, we see the full magnitude of humanity that was, in and of itself, part of his success. In telling that story now for the first time is my guest, Rick Tetzelli. He's the executive editor of Fast Company. He's covered technology for two decades, and it is my pleasure to welcome him here to talk about his new book, Becoming Steve Jobs. Rick, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's a real pleasure. It's great to have you here. Talk a little bit, first of all, about the process of, of this book and the decision to do it, given all that has been written for so long about jobs. My co-writer, Brent Schlender, knew Steve for 25 years. He covered him for uh, the Wall Street Journal and Fortune. He met uh, Steve right after uh, Steve had been kicked out of Apple, um, essentially went into exile or the, or the wilderness, as some people have said. And he, he then, Brent then saw Steve change more than any other businessman he'd ever known. And Brent and I, I worked on a lot of Brent's stories over the years at Fortune, and now I'm at Fast Company, and we worked together on a story about him about a year after he died, and we both thought, you know, this change really hasn't been documented. People think, you know, that Steve Jobs was born half jerk, half genius from birth, <laughs> and it's the farthest thing from the truth, and it's also completely unsatisfactory as an explanation for his career. If somebody is a merely static individual, how is it that, you know, they fail terribly at the beginning of their career and then come back to, you know, create the what's the greatest comeback in American business history? It doesn't it doesn't explain anything. So we tried to get in there and show how he had changed, show why he had changed, who were the people who influenced him along the way. And it was really sort of investigative reporting in, in a way or digging deep because Jobs himself did not like to look back. He always wanted to look forward. Um, Brent sent him a note on the 20th anniversary of the Mac and said, you know, you must feel really proud of this. And Steve wrote, wrote back and said, well, I guess, but I'm much more excited about what's going to happen next. <laughs> and that's just the way he was. There really was, though, this profound nexus between who he was, the way he evolved, the way he responded to the personal crises in his life, and the creativity that really gave him the leg up in terms of what he created. It's very, it's, this is why he is 
such a fascinating and complex person and why I think, you know, there will be many other books written about him over the years. If you, you know, he himself was a liberal arts-oriented person in, a, in an engineer's world. Um, he eventually turned technology into something that, you know, Americans and people around the world came to see as something wonderful, something that they wanted, something that was not complicated. Um, he, he, you know, you, you, you would never have imagined that you might love your phone. Some people love their phones. And this is often cast as a societal problem. Um, you know, we're all isolated behind our machines. But I think that there's something that's fundamentally optimistic um, behind the creation of these machines, which is that we are all creative and that these machines tap into our creative side. That's why he was a great creator of machines, of devices for people, for consumers. Bill Gates was a great creator of devices for businesses. He helped businesses be more efficient. He helped them, you know, all the efficiencies and downsizing and all of that sort of stuff as a result of computing that was standardized to be cheap and effective for, for businesses. Steve Jobs, on the other hand, you know, created things that, that, that we can delight in. I think, I, think we are, I think we are somewhat flattered by the idea that someone is creating these kinds of things for us. And that's why there's this intense emotional feeling about Apple. I mean, there's a, there are also intense emotional feelings against Apple as well. I mean, if you feel that they are, you know, these devices are, are making us more lonely or more isolated. I'm not of that ilk. I believe that these are, are pretty magnificent things. And I wanted to understand more about the man who had who had made this possible and who, had, who, who I think, as a business journalist, has had a more profound effect on American business than anybody. Things, th there are some things that are central to American business now that were not central to American business back in the 80s. Design is one. Quality is one. Customer service has come a long way. Apple was at the leading edge of all of these things. And their success um, made it okay for other companies to bring those things into their, um, into their uh, C-suite, as they say. You know, mm -hmm. the chief executive officer could be a designer. There could be a chief design officer. Um, that's all because of, of Jobs and Apple, I believe. Why was it so difficult for him to convey that sense early on, this nexus between the humanity and really the wonder of the products that he wanted to create, and really make those on the business side of the equation understand what the payoff might be? Well, for one thing, the computing, I mean, on, to get to your last point about the business side, the computing power wasn't there until 
really the internet came the confluence of the internet coming along and computing power getting so powerful uh, com computers getting so powerful that a laptop um, you know your MacBook for example could do all the business analysis that you needed it to do before that everything had to be standardized to make it work to make it work for businesses in his early years, he was a brash, immature young man who was difficult to get along with, who was abrasive by nature, and who had success early. And so he had the idea that his abrasiveness could be a tool for him. But he was also a young guy. He made lots of mistakes. I made some terrible mistakes <laughs> in my 20s. I never denied the paternity of a child, which is a grievous, grievous, you know, and, and some people say unforgivable error. But he regretted that, and he tried to make amends, although, you know, it was never, it, it was in some ways an irreparable situation. Um, but he made, he made a lot of dumb, dumb mistakes in his twenties and he made far fewer of them, you know, in his forties. Um, that's a pretty common trajectory <laughs> and, um, he, he just, he could not get beyond himself as a young man, um, he, he was only interested in creating breakthrough products. And so he could assemble a group of people and get them to do something wonderful for a year or for nine months. But then he couldn't, he couldn't get them to do it again. He'd burned them out. Mm -hmm. And he had to learn how to not do that. And that's where watching um, pick, people at Pixar helped him enormously. Um, Pixar was a study in patience for, for the first thing for 15 years, they, they did computer animation that was not really what they wanted to do. They always wanted to make a movie, but they were doing other things. So they were helping George Lucas. They were creating commercials. They were doing different things like that. And Ed Catmull kept this amazing group of talented people together. So Jobs saw that, and he saw Catmull's management style, and that taught him a lot. And then he learned a ton by seeing Toy Story be made. Um, Catmull has this expression about Pixar movies. He says, at some point, all our movies suck. And, you know, Steve Catmull was such a strong leader that he kept Steve out of the creative process. Steve was never allowed in the meetings where directors and animators would really critique this, the the movie as it was going as it was going on. He was kept outside of that process, and he and so he marvelled at how these people over four or five years would create, would go through failure and dead ends and all sorts of things, and yet come out at the end with something as perfect as Toy Story or A Bug's Life. And that taught him something so that when he went back to Apple in 1997, 
he had patience. And patience is not a word we associate with Steve Jobs. But Apple's success over the last 15 years of his life was a study in the patient, study in patience. It was a study of how you follow technology where it leads and also how you assemble a group of really amazing people and keep them together for the long run. And that's like, you know, if you, if you, you can think of, you can think of Apple's executive team in the same way that you think of the animators and the directors who stay at Pixar over all those years and create one hit after another. Well, that process is very similar to what Apple has done. You know, they create one hit after another. And they have their highlights, like the iPod or the iPhone or the iPad, just as, you know, Pixar has its highlights. You know, you can pick your favorite Pixar movie. But everything that they did was very high quality. And, and so the two places are, are very interesting and have a, have, Pixar had a, had a profound effect on how he managed once he came back to Apple. It's interesting in looking at those early years before he developed this patience, before the Pixar experience, how his personality, how the lack of patience and, and the way, as you say, he burned through people was in so many ways inconsistent with the philosophy that he brought to it, the, the liberal arts background, the sense of, of humanizing technology. All of those things were antithetical to the personality and the way he interacted with people. There was a real disconnect there. Uh, that's, a, that's a great point. Um, you, are, you are so right. Um, it um, it really it really is extraordinary when you see how um, you know he 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 did thing he, there were certain things he did with a with a willfulness um, and a, a lack of charity when he was when he was young that you know it's truly breathtaking <laughs> um, some of these some of these things and at the same time. He, he was, you know, like the advertising campaign, the first advertising campaign for, for the Apple II was all about, you know, how this would help you be your creative self and it would help you, you know, this is the device that's going to, um, you know, change things at home. And you'd see these pictures in the ads of this happy family and, you know, the graduate who's getting a computer and heading off to college. And it created this image of a of a home that was sort of uh, almost almost where people would gather around the computer the way depression era families were were said to have gathered around the radio, and and yet and yet he he himself was had nothing like that. There's a wonderful story that uh, Joe Nocera, who's now a New York Times mm-hmm. op-ed columnist wrote in 1987, um, it was one of the last um, stories where Steve allowed access to his private life. And Joe really got at this uh, loneliness um, of Steve's life at the time. And he, he was, you know, he was, a, he was a bachelor, he was confused, and 
in his life, um, you know, like mine or like many other people, was changed by, you know, having children and falling in love. It really did have have an impact on him. One of the nice stories in the book is about when um, Steve uh, invited Brent, my co-writer, over to his house to watch an early version of Toy Story. And uh, Brent brought his kids over and uh, Steve's, Steve's son Reed was there. He was five years old and he was running around the house with a cape on pretending to be a witch. And, um, Steve made the popcorn for everybody. And, you know, there, there was this, there was this family side of, of, of Steve, um, that was, that was true, that was real and warm in a way that most of us hope ours is. And I think sometimes past depictions of him have have extended that lack of charity he showed in his early career to his family life, and and that's that's just not the case. Did he have to work at that? Was it was it behavioral in that by actually making the effort and realizing that he had this this obligation in terms of dealing with family differently, that he then settled into that? Was it something that came naturally or that he really had to work hard at? It's a, again, it's a, a great question. I, 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 I don't know the answer to that. What I do know is that when you talk to, when you talk to people around him who were around him at the time, um, they have so many stories about about Steve when he was a new parent that are like all the, you know the stories of friends of mine. I mean, you know, you know, by all accounts, by all accounts, he and Laureen, his his wife, um, you know, started out as if they knew everything about parenting. Um, were completely exhausted after two months. Um, frazzled, uh, Steve, uh, came into the office one day and at next computer and said, well, we have to hire a president, a president. I can't do this alone anymore. Um, you know, and, and, and he talked about his kids and, and he had photos of his kids around. I mean, it seems like a very, it seems to have been a, a, a natural process. Talk a little bit about how he viewed technology in the context of all that we've been talking about, because there does seem to be a sense that he evolved even in his views of what technology would do and how we should interact with it. Well, the, the great, um, it, it's, it's a really interesting, the key to evolu- the, how, his, how he evolved, I think, has to do with the when when computing became um an act of communication not just an act of 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 processing power all his life steve understood that a computer was this magical thing that gave people access to things that they had not had before that's why he was so um exacting about user interfaces. If you think about it, the user interface is where you cross from your real world to the virtual world that your computer 
allows you access to, whether it's a website or whether it's a document or something like that. He, he obsessed over user interfaces. It was, it was a, a huge thing to him. Then when the Internet came along, the devices became something else. There was an aspect of community to them. And, and that, was, that was interesting. He, I would say that, that that was an important part but he wasn't, it, of, of, of how he looked at computing. That's why the f building a phone became such a necessity. But I think he was always most interested in the interaction between an individual and the device. Um, his, um, you know, the, the iPad was, was sort of the last breakthrough device that he had created. And when he did the presentation for the iPad, when he presented the iPad, he sat on stage, he sat under a lamp, and there was a, a, a table beside the couch that he was sitting in. It was really a, a sort of living room kind of scene. It was intimate. And I think he, I think he saw that, that intimacy between you and, and what you're allowed to do because of that device. I think that was always more important to him than the communications aspect. In looking at technology and looking particularly the way the, the Internet has evolved, even to the present and, and the apps that are created for these phones, that there are two fundamental buckets by which people look at them. One is about information and the value of big data, little data, and all the information that it makes available. The other, which gets less attention and really seems to be the thing that Jobs was focused on, was, was what you said, that it was about communication, not just about the information, but the way it was used and the way people interacted with it. And that seems to be a real big difference. Yeah, I think that, you know, when, you have to remember that, that um, you know, when the, when the Internet came along, um, as a as a major factor, it's very interesting. It, you know, this is, this is the thing about Jobs. Like, you know, I had, I've I never wrote a book. I had never written a book before this one. And the wonderful thing about the act of writing this book is I'm still finding stuff out. I'm still figuring, wrestling with Steve Jobs. And one of the one of the wonderful things that he did at Next. There was a lot of great technology at Next. It was just a failure as a commercial product. Um, was It was a great networked computer. Um, he did understand, you know, he understood the value of connecting everybody across these, these, these things. Um, and he understood, you know, sharing music and he understood um, telephone connectivity and texting and all those sorts of things. And what you, the way you have to think about jobs adapting to this new world of communications is the way that he adapted to everything. He learned to follow his nose. If the, if we think of jobs as the guy who said, I know what consumers want better than they do. And that was true insofar as he didn't use focus groups and he didn't do market research and he didn't play play to the norm. He played, you know, he wanted to create excellent devices. 
But when he saw things going a certain way, he followed. And, you know, he understood, he saw how valuable communications were. And he made his devices, you know, that Apple expanded its idea of the whole widget. Originally, the idea was that Apple was the only company that created both the software and the hardware. That was its advantage over other companies. By the time he died, he was selling an Apple experience that had hardware and software, a computer, um, a phone, all connected wirelessly, and all connected to other people who had these things too. And the idea was that within that world of connected Apple devices, your experience had to be as good and excellent as it was when you were just, you know, working on your computer at, at your desktop. It was a very, it's a, it's a really ambitious vision. How did he evolve in his understanding of corporations and corporate politics? Certainly, he didn't quite grasp that early on, particularly at Apple, and, and it came to haunt him. How did he evolve in his understanding of that over time? Well, I think, again, you know, he, he did, he failed miserably at that. He was not a good corporate player. Scully was much more, John Scully was much more adept at that. Um, Steve pontificated about all kinds of things when he was, you know, in his 20s and early 30s, many of which he didn't know anything about. He uh, at Next, when he started there, they had this ridiculous thing called the Open Corporation, where they published everybody's salaries, and um, you know, they—they, they, I can't remember what the, I can't remember whether they called each other comrades or partners, but you know, it was, they were all together in this, and it was, and there was an idealism behind this that you know, fell to pieces as soon as there was, um, you know, an engineer who wasn't willing to come for the amount of money that Steve had assigned to that category, and then Steve would pay him more and, and you know, make these crazy side deals with people to try to keep this ridiculous thing going. He learned over time how to, um, how a corporate structure, pardon me, um, how a corporate structure could be a, a real um, advantage to him. He became he became somebody who believed always. He came to, what he came to understand was that he liked to manage small teams, and he believed that small teams were effective. And so Apple is constructed around the idea of small teams working together. That's still the case now, even though they're they have twice as many employees as when Steve died. Um, they still try to operate that way. And that was something he came to learn um, during those wilderness years. Finally, in what ways was he still evolving, still changing in his last couple of years? It's a, it's a fascinating question, and it's complicated by the fact that he was deathly ill. Um, you know, he... Um, in his, in his last years, he turned, uh, we, we talked with Tim Cook about this, you know, he turned a lot of attention to what Apple would be after he died. Um, 
he started at Apple University, which is a, a program within the company that's designed to teach people um, the whys of the great of the decisions that Apple had made over the years, both the bad decisions and the good decisions. Like, so that so that future generations of leaders at Apple can understand the kind of thinking that was applied to these decisions, and then they can apply it to their own decisions. I think that I think that you know, and he was his. What's hard about those last years is that, you know, the battle with the cancer was so intense and that took up a lot of his attention and time the way it does for, for anybody who's dying of cancer. And so when you think about evolution, he knew that it was going to end at some point. And he began preparing for what was going to come after his end for the company. That was what he could prepare for. And, and so it's, you know, it's a, it was a very wise approach to the end of his life and, and, and his career. You know, he could be obstreperous and mean and difficult all the way to the end. And if you look at things like the labor collusion case um, that they were involved in, or some of the some of the things in the ebook case that Apple did did wrong, um, there's almost a willful, you know, sort of ignorance of convention um, in those things. Um, but but he was. Both Tim Cook and Ed Catmull told us, you know, he, he became more and more of a teacher during his last few years. And that was something he, he could pass on. Rick Titzelli, he's the co-author of Becoming Steve Jobs, The Evolution of a Reckless Upstart into a Visionary Leader. Rick, I thank you so much for spending time with us. I thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 